It's Monday. It's midnight. It's my top ten. Hi, welcome back to my top ten. This week, I went to BBC Somerset in Taunton to chat to Simon Parkin. It's quite a long chat, so let's get straight into it. I didn't even know what a Christmas club was, and there he was having a breakdown over it. I'm joined this week on my top ten by Simon Parkin. Hello, Simon. Hello. How are you? I'm all good, thanks. I'm uh, excited about the prospect of of revealing my top ten. That's very good to hear, because you're in the right place to discuss a top ten. Um, but before we get to that, by way of a warm-up, mm. uh, give me your life story in three sentences. Okay. Born in Manchester. Still alive, probably dying at some point. Oh, might be soon. Um, well, well, let's hope not. <laughs> well, no, I don't mean like during the podcast. I'm hoping to make it to the end, but you know, you know, but I've had a good run, so it'll all be fine. So, um, so yeah, born Manchester, wanted to be Noel Edmonds, sort of nearly, kind of almost followed his career path as best as I could doing children TV, a bit of other stuff, and uh, still still just about managing to get away with it, making a living, working for the BBC in Somerset. You've not gone down a beard route that he went down, though, thankfully. No, well, he had a beard at a young age. I have never had the skill to be able to grow a beard. Now, I could not shave for a few days, and there would be some patchy bits of unpleasantness on my face, but it would not look in any way, shape or form like something that is planned to be there. I just haven't got the something to mean that I could get away with a beard. And also, the you've got to go through the dirty, grubby phase for it to be worthwhile. So, and beard management, I suspect, is actually more hard work than shaving. So, for all of those reasons, I'm out. Beard management is not anything I've got involved with. It just grows... And then I cut it off when it gets boring. Well, you see, that's all right. You see, I have enough trouble with my eyebrows where they just grow out of all proportion. And I'm having to deal with those. The first day that I sat in the barbers and he said, do you want me to do your eyebrows? It was like one of those points of like, oh, my God, I'm older than I think I am if my yeah. eyebrows are getting more unmanageable. So uh, beards as well, I just, oh, forget it. So let's move swiftly on <laughs> from that then. Um and could you give me your three career highlights that please you the most? Oh, gosh, three career highlights. Blimey, that's a hard one. Um, getting on the radio in the first place was a brilliant career highlight because I was the era that I grew up in. There weren't many radio stations. You had a handful of commercial radio stations. You had a handful of BBC stations and you had pretty much nothing else other than radios one, two, three and four. And so I'd send letters and tapes off and, and get lovely rejection letters back. And then one day I was allowed to go on a real actual radio station, Radio Tees, up in the northeast. And my mum and dad, we were living in the northwest at the time, they kind of drove to the Pennines, to the 
furthest away point they could pick it up and listen. And then when I'd finished that programme, I then drove home and, and then I was, oh, we listen to you on there. And it was like, suddenly it was like, that's it. My life is worthwhile now because all that I've dreamed of was achieved in that Saturday afternoon show on Radio Tees all those years ago. Um, gosh, other career highlights. It's really hard to pick career highlights. Um, I know, it, it's, you sort of want to be modest and at the same time... Yeah. And yeah, at the same time, blow my own trumpet. Yeah. So yeah. But I'm asking you to blow your own trumpet. So blow away. Um, d- doing top of the pops. That was a real kind of wow yeah. moment because who didn't grow up watching top of the pops? I have no musical talent, so I was never going to be on there as a pop star. But to be the one doing the bits in between was like you know pinch yourself. And having worked at Television Centre for a few years before I was allowed to do Top of the Pops, I'd sort of hung around. And so to suddenly be, this is me and there's Sonia. You know, I mean, that's who would not love that experience? Uh, so I'll have that as a career highlight. Um, other career, oh, flip, third career highlight. Um, does just still being employed count? Because there are many people who probably have fallen by the wayside and I, for whatever reason, haven't. It's not because I know where the bodies are buried. You know, I think I've just been exceptionally lucky and have just sort of managed to have enough going on that someone somewhere has always gone, oh, yeah, well, yeah, all right, we'll keep him on. So does that count? That, yeah, definitely. Phew. Excellent. That's a career highlight that you're living every day then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the highlight although, of- although not every day I think it's a highlight, <laughs> but that's that's, yeah, that's another worry. Right, let's move on to your list proper. What are we going to be talking about today, Simon? We are going to be talking about something that I know a bit about, which is children's television programmes. Now, the joy of doing a subject like this is that probably everybody has watched a children's television programme at some point in their lives, and they probably have their favourites, and they probably have forgotten loads of great shows that their friends remember fondly. And they all evoke, particularly if you're sort of my age, they all evoke this special time where... TV wasn't like it is now. We didn't have the multi-channel thing. If you want a children's TV show now, you can put on the Nickelodeon channel or you can put on the CBBC channel or you can find something on Netflix. Back then, we had four till R5 every day and that was it, unless you were wagging it from school and you could get play school in the daytime just before Pebble Mill at one. But that was it. That was the output of television. So that was our telly. That was special and so for that reason, children's television always is, you know, that bit more, I don't know, evocative, I think, of memories and situations than proper telly. The appointment to view era where you had to be there, you had to sit down at the time to watch it. Uh, otherwise you missed it and everyone was talking about it in the playground. Well, and also at the other end of that is that now there are so many distractions with like video games and all that kind of stuff. We didn't have that then either. So technically there was nothing else to do. So you might be out on your bike or something or playing football, but if it was raining, then you kind of had to watch the telly because that's all there was. So even by default, you were sort of engaging in something that even if you didn't want to, you couldn't help but be part of. And what are your earliest sort of uh, TV, um, children's TV memories? I used to love... The BBC used to buy these series from foreign countries, things like Heidi and things like Robinson Crusoe, and they were black and white and they were grainy and they were badly dubbed. And so I do remember that as being a... Ooh, 
you know, watching this programme and thinking, but not quite understanding why the mouth isn't going with the words. And obviously, as you get more grown up, you sort of understand the way that these things work. But that whole sort of these faraway programmes. And then at the other end of it, you'd have the BBC doing something like Play School, which was clearly in the little studio, clearly with toys that I'd have had at home. And so on the one hand, you've got, oh, he's on a desert island. And on the other, he's just sitting in a cupboard. And so that sort of the whole mishmash of everything, cartoons obviously were were big at the time. And I do remember the BBC used to always end the children's sequence with something like the Magic Roundabout. And I can remember watching the Magic Roundabout and knowing that the sort of the crushing disappointment, there's some news coming on now. Uh, And it's like all the fun's gone from the telly because the Magic Roundabout is going to finish and then someone's going to tell me about something bad. And... Of course, by the, by my era, it was neighbours that they they oh yeah, stuck so, in that yeah, slot. which is great, and that was even better. So you know, who who doesn't miss Bouncer and Mrs Mangle? Oh. happy days. So what? Where are we then? What's at number ten? At number ten. Oh, before we get into the top ten, do you mind if I just say there are some obvious omissions from the top ten that probably should be in the top ten, but. Firstly, I didn't want to go for all the usual suspects. So Blue Peter is without a doubt a triumph of broadcasting. It is a triumph of children's television and it should be in the top ten. It isn't because it's kind of in everybody else's top ten. And so I kind of would rather not nudge that out so that then you can creep something in that you go, oh, I'd forgotten about that one. Um, but, you know, don't please don't think that I'm underestimating the power of Blue Peter. And also, I had a really big to-do about, am I allowed to include Doctor Who? Because I kind of want to, because it was a children's programme when it was born, but then it became like a proper drama programme. And I thought, if I if I put it in the top ten, Whovians, Hoovers, are going to shout at me <laughs> and say, well, it's not a children's programme, it's a fully-fledged whatever. But if I were allowed to include it, I, it would be there with John Pertwee in the early years and then from Christopher Eccleston onwards, because, you know, when it was reinvented by the genius that is Russell T. Davis and given a, you know, a human heartbeat to the also-ran storylines and the Doctor was cool and wearing a leather jacket, you know, what's not to love? So if they were your ultimate Doctors, who would your ultimate Blue Peter lineup have been? It would have to be the dream team of... John Noakes, without a shadow of a doubt. Uh, the action man, great with the dog. You know, he was he was the man. Peter Purvis, uh, possibly because of the ex-Doctor Who connection, sort of playing in my mind somewhere. It gets a bit tricky somewhere around Leslie Judd and Valerie Singleton because they were both my era. And Valerie was great, but Leslie was great too. So I, I might have to have a four-way split with my ultimate trio or would you rather I crowbarred in like a Connie Huck to get down with the kids can I do like a fantasy hey, lineup? Hey, yeah yeah um, your, your lineup. okay uh, well uh, sorry Connie I'm gonna stick with um, John Peter and I'll, I'll have to say Val because that was my blue Peter and was there an, a dog that stood out above all the others well Petra of course. And, you know, I had the joy of working at Television Centre for many years. And in the Blue Peter Garden was the statue of Petra. So now up in Salford, and I've, 
you know, I've paid homage to her there as well. <laughs> so, you know, I, I think Petra is... Goldie was quite good with Simon Groom later on and Bonnie with Yvette Fielding. You know, they were a great double act as well, but, you know, Petra was... There was something about Petra. Shep, a little bit too showy. You know, you could tell that he was trouble. Petra, solid, dependable, reliable. Ah, oh, Shep had that song written about, you know, I think I'd be a bit arrogant if Elvis had sung a song about me. <laughs> yeah. yeah, although I don't think it ends well for Shep, uh, true, that song. Yes. <laughs> so maybe, you know, maybe, maybe that's why he was playing up, maybe. So, well ends. Uh, what is at the bottom of your top ten? Well, I couldn't not put in the children's BBC broom cupboard. Firstly, because I'm an egomaniac, and that's where I started my illustrious TV career. But you, the whole thing, and I saw it from the inside out and from the outside in, I remember watching the first time that it was on, and it was September the 9th, 1985, and it was my friend Phil's birthday, and we put the telly on, and there's Philip Schofield, who we'd never heard of, sitting in a radio studio, introducing TV programmes... And you're thinking, this is this is absolutely the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. What is this all about? How? What? What am I watching here? Get a cartoon slide saying Children's BBC up like they had last week and some deep-voiced BBC announcer telling me that Rhubarb and Custard's coming on. And then within a day, it's like, oh, I wonder what he's doing today. And then t- tomorrow, it's like, oh, so how have we lived without this for all of these years? And the simplicity of... A locked-off camera watching a man who is just at 10 seconds in between the programmes going, well, that was great, wasn't it? And, and you're going to like this too. And then building it up so you had Gordon the Gopher coming in and the the phenomenal amount of mail because the viewers felt included in some clever club. And then what what it became was this 12 million people watching it. Now, that, I mean, that's kind of X factor they kill for ratings like that in this day and age. Get like sort of six or seven. And the money they spend on shows like that and Strictly and the Children's BBC broom cupboard, there was no budget. I don't remember anyone ever telling me from an important bit of the BBC that they cared about what we were doing. We were just trusted to go on, have fun, and that's what we did. And the viewers came along and... Like I say, you know, the the massive amounts of posts that would come in with ideas and with suggestions and with stuff that you could turn into stuff. And, you know, Philip Schofield, proper bona fide broadcasting legend now. You know, Andy Peters, lovely man, the probably the most TV savvy person I've ever met in my entire life. You know, his career started there. Philippa Forrester, Andy Crane, you know, this list of people who were just sitting in a chair doing 10 seconds of nothing, but so important. So how did you go from looking at your telly on the 9th of September 1985, thinking, what the crikey is this, to working on it, to, to being in the broom cupboard? I, I was very lucky, and my thought on life is, it's luck and timing that are the crucial things. And I had been working at Radio Tees, fulfilling my destiny of, right, I want to be on the radio, right, I'm now on the radio. I've got my own show on a radio station. One of the people who worked at the radio station wanted to be on TV, and he wanted to be a star. And one Saturday morning, he was doing a programme that was on from 6 o'clock to 9 o'clock, and my programme was on at 9 o'clock. And so I'm reading through the Saturday papers, and there's this big piece about 
young Philip Schofield. Uh, he's the rising star within the BBC. Then he's going to move from the children's BBC in the afternoons to the Saturday morning show. Saturday Super Stories it was then, but we didn't know what it was going to become. And so I said to my colleague at Radio 2, you, sh- you should go for that. And he said, oh, no, I'm too tall and I'm too... And he was just moany. And so when then the next guy came in, I said, oh, you, I was talk, talking to Mark about this thing. And he, did, he want, didn't want to go for it. And so the next guy said, well, you, you know, you should go for it. And I said, well, how am I going to? And he said, well, look, I auditioned when Andy Crane did. And so, and he gets a pen and a piece of paper, phone this man, he said. And so gives me this number with the name Pat Hubbard on it. And so I thought, well, I'm never, I'm not going to, I've only been here for like two minutes. I don't want to, you know, I can't rock the boat and stuff. And then I had a bad day and then the boss got me in and told me that something was wrong and demoralised me completely. I thought, right, I'm going to phone the BBC. So I phoned the number. And the man, Pat Hubbard, answered the phone. Now, this was probably mid-afternoon. And knowing the BBC as it was then, and Pat's sadly no longer with us, so he's not able to to either clarify or deny what I'm about to say. He'd probably had a liquid lunch. Mm-hmm. And so he was like, yeah, no, we're, no, we're not looking for anybody. Of course we're not looking for anybody. Uh, but what is it you do? OK. And then he said, "And when, 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 when are you next in London? And so I'm like, I'm up in Stockton on Tees. I said, well, I don't really ever come to London. Well, when's your next day off? He says. And so I said, well, Thursday. Right, come down on Thursday. So suddenly I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going to go into Television Centre, which I'd seen on Blue Peter and seen on Swap Shop. And wow. And so I went down to London on the Thursday and sure enough, was allowed through the gate and met this lovely man called Pat Hubbard, who then took me for a tour around Television Centre and it was a Thursday and it was a live Top of the Pops, so I saw that and they were setting, going live and, you know, all of these things. And and then he said, would you mind awfully if I see what you like in a studio? So he sits me in a studio, puts this random earpiece in my ear and then goes and sits in the control room and I'm looking at, like, you know, the big old BBC cameras that were big, square, massive things. Right, yeah. I'm sitting looking at one of those thinking, I cannot believe I am looking at one of these. And it's looking at me, and then Pat Hubbard says, am I right? Just uh, tell me a little bit about yourself. So I start wittering on about nothing. And and then he he comes in at the end. He says, oh, that's really interesting. He says, oh, I'm really sorry. That was, that was absolutely awful of me to not give you any warning that I was going to audition you, but you did really well. Would you like to work here? Wow. And so... Uh, you know, I'm kind of thinking I'm just happy to just be here, let alone work here. And then he was as good as his word. And then I got this old fashioned letter because I didn't have a phone back then. And saying, we want to employ you to do the Christmas mornings. Come down and we'll mould you for an earpiece. And, and then that was it. And then I came down and I wasn't very good. But the BBC were quite nice then and they would allow you to be not very good. And then they'd give you a bit of guidance and they'd help you. And so I did Christmas and that went, you know, ish. And then they said, well, we'll come back down for, for Easter. And that went a bit better. And then they said, right, come down for the summer, when, which is when I then got to do the actual broom cupboard, the actual afternoon sequence for the whole of the summer. And then I just never went. And that was it. So just, I'm pretty sure, had I not phoned on that Tuesday afternoon at 2.30, if I'd phoned it Tuesday morning at half 11, probably wouldn't have got him and probably would never have been invited down and probably would never have got the job. And wow. so, so it was all to do with that one phone call and the liquid lunch, yes. probably. I think. But he must have heard something in you on that phone call. Do you remember thinking, oh, I nailed that? Well, I probably sounded like a local radio DJ, which is what I was. So probably I I was a bit confident. And because I sort of, 
I didn't, it wasn't like, oh my God, this is my dream job. I was literally phoning because I was like really cheesed off with my own boss. And so probably I kind of had a sort of relaxed kind of air of calm about me. And I obviously didn't sound like I was going to be trouble. So, but, you know, just the whole kind of, and I still c- cannot believe the, well, when's your next day off? Right, come down then. And and I did, you know, and you, crikey, you know, thank God I did. Thank God I didn't go, actually, you know, I've got to go to Asda that day. So uh, I, heaven knows where I'd, I'd still be at Radio T right now. Mo- how- moaning to the bloke who's on after me. Oh, they won't want me in telly. <laughs> and how long had you been at Radio T's? I had been at Radio T's for, a, I'd, I'd started in the end of May and then I went full time at the end of August and this was probably middle of August. Or so. I hadn't been there very long. Wow. I'd, I'd literally, in 1987, I started on the radio in, in, as I say, the middle of May and then I was on telly by the Christmas and, you know. If you read it in a book, you wouldn't believe it, would no, you? No, ex- absolutely. And also, if you watched what I did, you wouldn't believe it. Either. You think <laughs> they could, surely they wouldn't let him in? Who is this boy? You'd be saying. So yeah, I think the ginger hair helped. I think you know, my my minority, you know, interest was quite good. So you know, all of that kind of stuff. I was always very jealous of both your hair and Andy Crane's hair, and would love to have had hair like that back in that time but mine was just too wavy and curly oh but you see people who have straight hair want the curls so you know you kind of can't win can you? surely it's easier to put curls in though than to straighten I, short, if, I, if i were a hairdresser i would know exactly what to do to iron out your curly locks but don't worry i'm not going to come near you with peroxide so how long were you actually in the broom cupboard i was i, I well hang on now this is where that it all gets a bit sort of um the devil is in the detail here. Um, so I was a children's BBC presenter from 1987 to 1992. Now, in that time, I had a big chunk of broom cupboard at the very start, and I did all of the sort of standing in stuff, but I was I was never full-time broom cupboard person. Um, so, so I came in when it was Andy Crane, who'd had the unenviable task of taking over from the legend that was Philip Schofield, but held his own and did a brilliant job and is probably one of the most amazing technical ability with TV people I've ever seen. He can start when he needs to, stop when he needs to, technical breakdown. You want Andy Crane by your side because just on the case can do it, shuts up on a zero, amazing. And so he was there when I joined and I was the supplement to him, so I'd do mornings while he was doing afternoons. And then Andy Peters came in at the same time as I was there, and then he took over from Andy Crane full-time in the broom cupboard. So I was, whilst I was there, I was I never did like a big slab of broom cupboard. But my time on Children's BBC, because at that point it was, we do all of the summer holiday mornings and the Christmas holiday mornings, and we had a Sunday morning thing that was on every Sunday on BBC Two. So I was there doing stuff full-time for like, Best part of five years. When you left, was it because you'd got too old? I hadn't got too old. I think I'd kind of done all I could. And also I was within the broom cupboard. You were on by yourself and you maybe had an Ed the Duck with you or something. But I would do the Sundays and do the morning stuff where there were other people to to co-presenters. And I sort of worked better with other people. So... I'd kind of 
done what I could in that environment. I think they probably were a bit fed up and bored of me and there was probably someone younger, fresher and cheaper coming up behind. So we mutually decided that it was kind of time to go and do something different, which in my case meant going to ITV and working for GMTV. So it was a, you know, it, it, timing-wise it was great. But but at the time it was still it was a big wrench to leave because it was such a lovely place to work and to be in Television Centre every day and just to be part of something that was so special. And, you know, now all these years on, people still, oh, I remember you from the broom cupboard. And, you know, to have been part of something that is that iconic. And essentially it was just, you know, a man in a box. So, you know, it's it, that blows my mind even more that it was so big and special and actually it was just really little and very ordinary. And who was your... Who were your main puppet cohorts? I was there. I started off with uh, a much-forgotten Gums the Fish, who started off as a real fish. And we... I don't know if you remember the broom cupboard, but it was. It looked like a radio studio. It was the actual continuity room where the BBC One... Now on BBC One, here's the news at nine o'clock with Angela Rippon, was done. And so we had an actual goldfish bowl with an actual goldfish and water in it sitting on top of some very <laughs> expensive BBC equipment. So quickly, someone went, oh, yeah, hang on, you can't do that. So we then had a stunt fish. And so Gums the Fish was my first first incarnation of a character. Got loads of post. Gums the Fish. People would send in little castles for a fake fish to swim around. Um, and then subsequent to Gums the Fish, Ed the Duck came up. I spent some very happy times with Ed the Duck and, you know, what a lovely co-presenter he was. Best thing about Ed the Duck, of course, he would quack what he was quacking and you could make him say whatever you wanted to. So if you wanted to say something bad and naughty, you could say it via Ed and he'd get into trouble. Bliss. Have you ever had a better uh, partnership? Than Ed the Duck? Yeah. Um, The guy you can speak for. Yeah, well, you know. (laughs) So who controlled Ed? I never signed anything to do with the Official Secrets Act, but I'm not entirely sure I'm allowed to give you that information. But what I can tell you is that the children's BBC team for the afternoons consisted of the presenter, and then you had a producer, and then you had Dorian and Syl, who worked in the office and did all of the works. If you needed a prop, they'd get it. If you needed a guest book in, they'd get it. If you needed the post sorted out, they'd do all of that. So only in the broom cupboard would you have yourself as the presenter and the producer and so a lovely producer called Christina who was responsible for all the grown up output of the the program she would she would hold Ed up into frame and he would perform as he does because he's a real duck obviously and so but but only Christina was allowed to hold Ed Ed up does that make sense oh wow so yeah so Christina was Ed's Ed's minder I think we used to say so Ed's (laughs) mum Sounds, yeah. <laughs> sounds a bit more dubious. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? So you, um, your son and I went into TVC, Television Centre, and it sort of felt a bit like something from W1A or Spinal Tap when we went looking for where the broom cupboard was yeah. and just found like an office uh, yeah. or a couple of offices had sort of chopped in half where it was. That was... Uh, t- tragic. Tragic, yeah. It was uh, we we when we did our tour of Television Centre, it was in the very very final stages of the BBC bit, and I'm sure it's been reborn in a lovely way now. But it was already past its best. But to find that the 
back stairs that led up to between the third and fourth floor, which is where the network control corridor was, which was where all of the BBC One, BBC Two would be broadcast from, just wasn't there anymore. And so therefore the broom cupboard, and there were the stunt broom cupboards. So you had one for the at the end of the BBC One output, uh, the, at the end of the BBC One network corridor, and you had one at the end of the BBC Two network gallery, and then there was another one round the back in case it all broke down. The fact that they've all gone but ended up in a skip or something, I don't know, it's tragic, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And was it part, remind me, was it part of the donut or part of the bottom of the it question was, mark? It, it was an offshoot. So as you you would go into Television Centre main entrance and then in the uh, half past, as it were, was where the back stairs were, the South Hall. And so it was it was off the back of that. So it wasn't, it wasn't within the round. It was uh, a little offshoot that, that sort of stuck out from the round. But what we did used to have was at the, in our little presentation area, there was a staircase that led you onto the roof of TC7 or something. I don't know, TC5 maybe. And so you were, so you were, you weren't the inner donut. You were the outer donut where the studios were that were bigger on the bottom than they were on the top. This makes absolutely no sense to anyone who's got no concept of what television centre is. So, so we were a slight. Spur, I think, is the word the BBC used to use in those days. We were a spur, but you could you could access the roofs of other, and we used to do OBs from on the roof of TC Five and stuff randomly, because that's what you did then. So, so presumably, it might still be the spot where it was. It might still be BBC property rather than the housing. Don't know. I, mm. I would love to think that someone is going to the bathroom where Andy <laughs> Crane had his finest hour on television. It needs so. a blue plaque, doesn't it? Really? I think it does. Yeah, absolutely. I might have a look, actually. On Have a look yourselves, um, listeners, dear listeners, um, because on Google Earth, you can go in and have a look round bits of television centre as was, um, as if it were just a street as was. Yeah. So old television. So it's not even the new one. I think old television centre, before they chopped it all up and changed it all around and made houses and flats and things, um, yeah, they went in with, with all the proper Google Earth cameras and wow. mapped it out. How incredible. That's someone with too much time on their hands, wasn't it, that did that? So, uh, actually, I'll, I'll mention this in the outro. I'll have a look between now and uh, recording the outro and let you know... Uh, whether you can find the broom cupboard and then I'm sure someone will say that I'm an idiot and I'm all wrong. Um, what's at number nine, Simon? Number nine is What's Up Doc. Now, Saturday morning TV was kind of dominated by the BBC. So you had your swap shop and then you had your superstore and then you go live and you live and kick in. And it was only when Ant and Deck came along with their SMTV that people took more of an interest in ITV than the BBC and so then suddenly they did it better. But for all of the rest of the time, ITV were putting on these brilliant Saturday morning shows that did great in the ratings, but probably have fallen by the wayside. Now, at the beginning, you got Tizwas that was legendary. Chris Tarrant and Sally James and Buckets of Custard and all of that kind of stuff. And then there were all these other ones that everybody's kind of forgotten about. And, and in the middle of it all was What's Up Doc. Now, this, this came on, I think... It was, would have been 92, and it was the tail end of going live and before Live and Kicking came in, and it was, it oozes 
someone's thought about a plan here. So it was a co-production with Warner Brothers. So they had Bugs Bunny cartoons, which are great. They also had uh, Warner Brothers had not long done brought back Batman the movie with Michael Keaton. And they did a cartoon series that was, you know, great and proper pucker artistry as well as great storylines. It was a proper good cartoon that was on it. And they had puppets made by Jim Henson's Creature Shop. So you've got quality from start to finish. And the lineup of presenters for What's Up Doc was Pat Sharp with, with the long hair from Funhouse, Andy Crane, who had been at Children's BBC and then did Motormouth, which was another Saturday morning show, but was sort of kept on. And he had Yvette Fielding, who she, she hadn't been become a Ghostbuster at this point. She was um, she'd done Blue Peter and she was by trade an actress. And What's Up Doc then used these presenters to present, which presenters can do, but they also acted. And they were given really funny scripts and they had this lineup of comedy puppets. And just for the first two years, it was surreal, it was well-written, it was funny, it was anarchic, it was irreverent. But my favourite thing is they had this, these two puppets who were wolves who would eat children. <laughs> and this is on a children's TV show, Saturday mornings. And it was it was that level of kind of funny... Humorous. They had a guy called Simon Perry who was a cheese ranger who was what you would imagine a train spotter looks like in his level of anorak detail, but it was all about cheeses. And it was just, it's funny hearing a man talking about Gorgonzola in that way. And it was just a really good show. And because it was propped up by the brilliant cartoons, it just worked. And they had, you know, pop stars coming in. And it wasn't, there wasn't like a cheesy kids' show where there's an audience sitting around, hey, clapping. It just sort of happened. So you've got these kids who sort of meandered into bits of scenes and they're sitting on boxes wondering, what, hang on, what is this ball of fur puppet that's, that's funny? And it was, it was just a really good show. And I, I think it did rate really well, but then there was all of the ITV regional thing where it was made originally by TVS and they lost their franchise and then it was Scottish and then and then eventually it sort of morphed into just a normal kind of Saturday morning. Oh, we've got a big screen and we've got an audience that claps and cheers and it had lost all of the 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 fun and the the anarchy that was there in the first place. But you know, on paper, if you said, right, we're gonna put this we're gonna do a, a show that's gonna be really funny and it's gonna have Andy Crane, Pat Sharp and Yvette Fielding on it. You there is no way you would go, this is going to be dynamite. But the way that they all performed in that, they took the mickey out of themselves and it was just a really good, fun show. Forgotten in the mist of time. I think I forgot it because around that time I was probably playing football on a Saturday ah, morning. Ah, there you go. But you will have a hobby. I do remember the Tasmania and he, he Tasmanian was, Devil, he yeah, yeah. Big yeah. feature, wasn't he? Yeah, um, the, the, and again, another, uh, there was a really good, well-made Warner Brothers cartoon that they did, yeah. And the, because I I didn't really remember it, I had a had a little research mm. and found that um, while it was at TVS, uh, the first couple of series, um, they it was this anarchic thing that you mention, and then apparently when it went to Scottish, a man with a suit said, "Oh, this is a bit this is a bit close to the knuckles. Some of this we need to tone it down," and in that toning it down, I think it it must have just lost the formula. And I think there was a change of production team and obviously the puppets, the two wolves, the guys who were the wolves, who were really funny, 
then defected to the BBC. And so when Live and Kicking came on and they had two comedy leprechauns, that was them. Yeah. Um, so, so it's, you know, the way that teams fragment and all of that kind of stuff probably had happened over that sort of probably the second year and we just didn't notice. And then, and then it just wasn't the same. But initially, I, and I, I was a bit slow to the party. It was only when I was asked to go on to plug a show that I was doing on ITV and you suddenly, when you're there, you get it and it all makes sense. And to see the, comedy happening there and the seriousness here and the way that they're interweaving the acty bits with actual straight presenty bits and all of that kind of stuff. And I just remember having my mind blown and thought, God, this is a really good show. And what I didn't want to do when I was compiling my top 10 was do a whole load of YouTube and have that awful realisation that actually 20 odd years on, oh, everything's awful. You know, it's all cheaply made and it's not as good as I remember and all of that kind of stuff. So I didn't want to revisit too much, but I did watch a couple of WhatsApp docs just to remind me. And I was still laughing. Uh-huh. I was still having the puppets and the characters and the a lot of it was very naughty. There's an awful lot of wine drinking going on on a kid's show. And uh, one of the characters is French and he just so happens to be a frog. And, you know, you probably couldn't do that now. But at the time... It just seemed kind of funny. So maybe that's where they were coming from when they said, we need to tone this down then, I suppose. Uh, yeah, I suspect that probably someone. But those Saturday morning shows had always been, whilst they were children's programmes, there was always a big audience of students in particular would kind of watch it and adults would perhaps be watching with their children. So you want to do something that's a bit sort of double level. So there was always a grown-up edge to the Saturday morning kids. It's perhaps just a bit too grown up, perhaps in this case. But just, you know, first two series, can't fault it. And where would you rate um, the ones that, the, the other ITV Saturday morning shows that sort of came behind it? So there's Tiz Was, as you mentioned. Tiz Was, Tiz Was is right up there at the start. That's, an, you know, groundbreaking, gave us Chris Tarrant, and it was, th- you know, that was proper messy mess. You know, pop stars in a cage having wet rice pudding thrown over them and stuff. We'd never seen anything like that on TV before. I think I was a and, Tiz Was boy, yeah. Yeah, well, you, you t- it was, there was a big swap shop or Tiz Was kind of thing. And you, you could do both if you sort of flicked between the two and you get the best of both worlds. But one was very comfortable and the other was, holy moly, what are they doing now? And so that, that sort of set the scene. Other ITV shows that came on, there was one called Get Fresh, um, Gaz Top and an alien called Gilbert who... Uh, you know, it picked his nose and stuff. And then, so there was always good ITV shows. I'm, I'm sure there were a few that perhaps haven't stood the test of time. I think there's one called The Saturday Banana. I've got no idea what that one is. And I have no no reason to want to go and look back. There was a show called Gimme Five, which was um, kind of quite good. And that's where Ant and Deck, they'd finished doing Biker Grove. And because it was all made up in Newcastle, they would sort of lig around and, and they would do the presenting. That's where they sort of cut their presenting teeth. And so that was on the go. But there, there were always, there was always sort of two, each channel had two shows each year. So you had your... Yeah, Saturday Superstore ran from September to April and then you had another one that was on the BBC and it was the same on ITV. ITV's series tended to not quite last as long. So you'd have like Motormouth did probably three years, whereas Going Live did six and that kind of stuff. So that, again, probably is why they haven't necessarily been as memorable 
because they just weren't there as long so they didn't sort of slip into the you know the the public consciousness as being that's the routine oh i didn't realize that the runs were september to i didn't really twig on that yeah like, it was something like that. it was it was basically autumn autumn to spring yeah. end of spring and then you had the summer replacement which was never as good so you, never as good would number 73 then have been 73 a- would have been that was a winter that was a proper that was the full on that's what you're going to get for the uh yeah october or late september to april that was a proper one. It was a problem. It wasn't one of the kind of the summer short term, less impactful. And the BBC did the same, did they? Yeah, yeah. There was the there was the full time one that were the biggies, and then you had the other ones, things like the eight fifteen from Manchester, things like up to you. That probably, that probably you will fondly remember, but you wouldn't just remember. Whereas something like uh, going live, everyone remembers it without having to remember it. Does that make any sense whatsoever? Yeah, but my mind is blown. I didn't even researching this. I was sort of seeing that things were running September to April, September to May. Yeah, but I didn't even consider. Even Philip Schofield and Sarah Green were allowed a summer off. Gosh. Yeah. Well, I've put myself back together, Simon. What is it? Number eight. Number eight. It's a cartoon, and it's rhubarb and custard, and it kind of had everything going for it. But when you look at it, the animation's fairly crude. The story actually is probably not even there. But the voiceover was Richard Briers. What a lovely gentleman. And we loved him from being Tom in The Good Life. And here he was being the voice of a, I don't know, kind of greeny-coloured dog that in some scenes looked like an Alsatian and in other scenes just looked like a dog. And... Evil Custard, the pink cat from next door, who was the baddie. And what I loved about Rhubarb and Custard was, again, this sort of irreverence, which came with the era that it would have been made, which would probably be mid to late 70s. So you had, for example, it was set in Rhubarb's house. Rhubarb was the star. And so he would have Custard the cat and then there would be birds in the garden. Now, the birds in the garden would be up in a tree, Smoking cigarettes. Now, you wouldn't do that in a kid's show of today, but it seemed perfectly fine that they were doing this. There was a crow that used to smoke a cigar and had a monocle because the crow was, he was, you know, he was the, the big guy of the tree. They would do things like if they did a nighttime scene and the moon was out, the moon would have rollers in because that's what you wear to bed. If it was a hot day, the sun would have like a knotted hanky on his head. And, and it was just this lovely kind of oddness that went with someone somewhere presumably going we got half an idea here let's just get some felt tips and let's see what we do and the animation it genuinely looks like it was felt tip it looked you know when you do felt tip and it goes a bit sort of blocky in a color that's what rhubarb's nose looks like but it was just it was just funny and it was the you know good old rhubarb Bad old custard. Oh, and he's come a cropper at the end. Was pretty much every episode. When it rained, the birds would be wearing Wellington boots and sou'westers. Well, that doesn't happen in real life, but it kind of worked perfectly on that. And Rhubarb, because he was a dog, everything revolved around bones. So he'd have an alarm clock that was made of bones, and the hands on the alarm clock were bones. And it's just one of those, I don't know, just everything about it is memorable for probably all the wrong reasons, but it was just one of those shows. And like I say, the, the fact that you've got lovely Richard Briers telling a, you know, half-hearted at best story just made it just work great for, for the four minutes it was on 
at the end of the children's BBC sequence or somewhere in the middle, that's great. That's all you need. And Richard Bryce has such a, a lovely voice, doesn't he? And he? Oh, just so warm and so friendly and because he's such a versatile actor, you know, he played Custard Evil. Oh, and of course it had the most brilliant theme tune. Yeah, and of course it was made into a rave tune in around 92, <laughs> I, I think. Sadly, I was too old to uh, understand rave and that passed me by, that phenomenon. But again, they didn't need to do too much to it just because it was so awesome to begin with. Yeah, and just, you know, simple, much like the show was, but just, uh, if I hear that, I am right back, seven-year-old me, in from school, bored, watching the telly. That's that's where I am. And did you ever watch it eating rhubarb and custard or rhubarb and custard sweets? I was never a fan of actual rhubarb, even though I'm sure I'd probably quite like it, but there's something about the the stringy nature of it. The fact it's grown in poo. Uh, you know, why would you want to, why would you want to? eat something like that. I know it's washed, but... Um, so, no, I've never eaten proper rhubarb whilst watching rhubarb and custard. The little rhubarb and custard sweets that were sort of like blackjacks and tutti-frutti's or whatever, yeah, probably I will have been scoffing a handful of those that I got from the sweet shop for pennies whilst it was on. Why do you think rhubarb the dog was green? I, I don't know. and he's But he's not even a nice green. It's not even like a big, bright green. He's kind of like a dirty, kind of khaki kind of green so I've got no idea but because custard is pink, pink. It's but like he, he should have been yellow sort of the yeah. wrong way but well, well but when you were at school you see if you're of my generation he used to give you awful puddings for school dinners and so anything that had a blob of jam in it you would immediately turn it all pink so you'd get like semolina you'd mix the jam in yes. to turn it pink and so probably we did the same with the custard I would have thought so you know technically we might be accurate with that one. Oh, you've just reminded me of a school pudding we always seem to have, which was a blancmange, a pink blancmange. What even is blancmange? What what is it? Is it? Did, can you still get blancmange? Because oh. it was like jelly and custard together. But I don't remember it tasting very nice. No, it's anything, like a bad any, angel delight. Yeah, anything with a skin on it and that's gelatinous. Surely you're on hiding to nothing with a small child, aren't you? Yeah, although we, I think they tarted ours up with a squidge of pink cream, and always on the top of the squidge of pink cream was a little jewelled jelly sweet. Nice. A little diamond-shaped red jelly sweet. And that was the highlight of it all. Can I just say great word, squidged? Squidged. Can yeah. I say it again? Squidged. Yeah. You, you, I could say that all day. So squidged between number eight and number six. Very good. I like what you've done there. He's uh, number seven, and it's magpie. Now, much like we were talking about the Saturday morning thing, you had a BBC and an ITV thing going on, magpie was at the heart of the are you Blue Peter or are you Magpie? Now, subsequently, I have learned that Magpie was just an out-and-out rip-off of Blue Peter. The producer watched Blue Peter on the BBC and went, well, well, we can do that, and barely tinkered with the format, but what he did do was make Blue Peter cool. So, whilst on Blue Peter you've got stiff and starchy, terribly well-spoken Valerie Singleton, on ITV... You've got Mick Robertson, who looks like Mark Bolan, wearing jeans. And say, hey, come and, come and have a look at this. Whereas on Blue Peter, they, would, they wouldn't be that informal. And so Magpie just oozed normalness. Now, I do know I have friends who, and, you know, you're not old enough to understand this, but th- there would have been parents who wouldn't allow their children to watch 
ITV because it was ITV because oh, we no, watched the that was still around in my generation and, and Magpie would have been on the top of the band list they were, they've got pop stars and long hair what is this debacle of a program but it was just really good and it was it was nothing more than a blue peter but just done in a really lovely fresh way and you had um the team that i remember were uh Mick Robson uh, there was Jenny Hanley who had take, taken over from Susan Stranks, who was really good. And then there was Tommy Boyd and a fella called Doug. I don't remember his surname. but they And they just were... And they were grown-ups. It's not like they were trying to be, oh, I'm your mate. But they just sort of did it in a much more relaxed way. Plus, they had the added bonus. And I am a... I cannot tell you how much I love Television Censor. So when Blue Peter would do, oh, we've got a marching band coming in. And they'd open the big studio doors and you'd see... Oh, there's a bit of the car park and they'd be walking up the thing. I loved all of that. Magpie was done at Thames Television Studios at Teddington Lock. Now, you've got an iconic river and a lock and they're out in that garden looking at this lock with the river in it. Well, I mean, how can how can that not trump Television Centre and a bit of concrete? It, it just looked lovely from start to finish. And, and my most favourite thing about Magpie, in it being a Blue Peter ripoff, they had a Magpie annual appeal, like Blue Peter had an annual appeal. Blue Peter's annual appeal would be set up like a church that's trying to get money to raise funds for the roof. So they'd have like a big kind of wooden thermometer thing and they'd go, you'd have nice John or Peter going, well, look, we're at £2,000 and he'd be standing next to a, a, a plank with some kind of, oh, there's a bit of a red mark that shows where they're up to, kind of thing. As time went by, it got more sophisticated and there were lights and there were flashes. But essentially, it was a totaliser that was just a, a, a thing that was plonked next to the presenter. At Magpie, I have no idea why they did this, they drew a line around the studio. So they go, right, let's go over to Jenny now and let's see how we're doing with our appeal. And Jenny would go, well, as you can see, from all of the bottle tops you've been sending in, We've managed to go. We're just going through the door of Studio 2. We're in reception and the line ends here by this window. And it was just, wow, the drawing on walls. You know, it was just everything about it was kind of the opposite of Blue Peter, even though they were exactly the same. And, and it had a great theme as well. And why, why was it bottle tops? Well, I don't know why... Well, we had no money. Then. I remember so saving to bottle, milk tops. bottle tops. And Something to do with a foil? I don't know. That's no bizarre, idea. doesn't it? We use stamps. You know, how are they of value to anyone? But they clearly are. Someone who is in the charity sector will no doubt be able to explain to us why a bottle top makes a difference. But uh, but th but whatever it was, that's what we did. They got Blue Peter got into bring and buy sales in the end, so they knew that actual goods had to actually change hands. Where you know jumpers you didn't want to wear anymore. But back in the day. Like I say, it was things like bottle tops, but you're drawing on a wall. I mean, how how was that not something you wanted to see? You want to see a flashing totalizer? You want to see a line? Yeah, bit of graffiti. Yeah, exactly. And through the window, there's Teddington Log. You know, it's like a lovely view. Oh, I wonder how many kids got grounded because they were pretending to be that presenter drawing a line around their own house. I would think very few, because even the anarchic viewers who were watching that downmarket magpie on ITV rather than the uh, the proper pucker Blue Peter on the BBC knew that you don't draw on walls. So I went to a Blue Peter bring and buy sale depot. Yeah. Um, Did you take any bottle tops? I, I don't know what I took. I probably took something with me. 
old junk to get rid of. Yeah. Not, not my sister, they wouldn't have allowed that. I, I imagine you didn't use the word junk when you were trying to sell it. Well, no. These quality items. It was just a depot. You took all of your oh, old right, stuff, okay. dumped right. it off. And they sold it. And they sold Janet yeah. Ellis wasn't even there. I, oh. I thought Janet Ellis would be there to thank me. I got a postcard with her face on a Blue Peter badge, I think. But what would Magpie have? Like, how did they compete with the Blue Peter badge? I... Or did they just not bother? Don't know. I can't remember. Um, I, d- I don't know. They had... They probably had a Magpie badge. Because the magpie, the logo was kind of quite, well, it was a magpie, fairly obviously. So it sort of was quite iconic in its own way. And the way that magpie, like when the theme came on, the logo for magpie that actually said the word magpie, was kind of like in those BBC lozenges when the letters BBC were slightly kind of off. They weren't straight. You remember they used to be sort of like it bending slightly and they were they were roundy for a time. And then they were, so magpie looked so they probably had a magpie badge, but I don't think they needed to big it up in the same way. Blue Peter, you know, needed you to know that you were special to get a Blue Peter badge. I think magpie, they were just happy if you were watching, I think, probably. Now, I don't know the answer to this, which is why I'm asking it, obviously. Okay. But was, was there a regional accent divide with magpie and it, Blue Peter? There, Doug, the man who I don't kind of remember that well, I think he was Scottish. Right. And so he would have had a regional accent. But no, I think everyone else kind of sounded... They perhaps dropped a few T's and H's in a way that you wouldn't have got on on the BBC on Blue Peter. But uh, I, d- I don't think it, that we weren't quite that era yet where we were, hey, we're going to make a bold difference by we're having someone from something called the North. So, you know, I don't think they'd kind of gone down that avenue just yet. But certainly the, the way that they spoke on Magpie was less prim than the way that they spoke on Blue Peter. On Blue Peter... They would have said, now, here's a something or other. And on Magpie, they'd have gone, wow, over here, look, we've got a something. And so it was that sort of difference. So in an H-free zone, steps could not have got got on in that era, could they? Finally on Magpie, Mm. um, Tommy Boyd. Tommy Boyd. I, I, I used to be a big fan of Tommy Boyd as a young lad, and he... Went on to be on the Wide Awake Club as well, which was another one of my favourites. And you've not really touched on those sort of really early morning programmes on your list here. So maybe we could just have a little detour into the Wide Awake Tommy Club. Tommy Boyd is going to take us to, to TVAM. Now, I when I was compiling my top ten, one of the things I wanted to put on was Roland Rat. Oh, yes. And now he is the rat that joined the sinking ship, saved the Breakfast Channel, and Roland Rat used to do... He used to do live stuff, so he didn't really have a programme. He was just there when they needed him to prop up all of the other stuff. And he would do phone-outs and things. And Roland Rat, because he's, he's not real, he, was, he never could put the phone down properly. And I used to love that he'd, he'd... Roland the puppet, with the man with the real hand inside him, would hold a real phone up to Roland's fake ear. <laughs> Rat phone! <laughs> Thanks for coming on. All right, bye. And then he'd put the phone down and miss. So instead of a man putting a phone on a phone hook, you'd get... <laughs> as he's doing the next bit. I used to love that about Roland Ray. And there's there's proper TV anarchy. You know, he used to call Nico in Nicolas. And, you know, that's, this is at 7 o'clock in the morning on, on primetime ITV. So, no, TV AM brought some amazing programmes. So Wide Awake Club, as you mentioned, and Whack-A-Day. And Timmy Mallet, 
when I grew up, he was on Piccadilly Radio in Manchester and he was proper, trendy, coolest man in the history of the world ever. He then goes to TVAM and, and ends up like with a big mallet going blur and wearing outlandish clothing. And he's anything but cool. But the Timmy mallet that I know is ultra cool. And I a lot of the Wackaday and Wide Awake Club passed me by because I was busy doing the BBC stuff when it was on. And you kind of, you didn't, we hadn't long had video recorders, as stupid as that sounds. So I wouldn't have taped the opposition to see what they were up to or anything. So I sort of never, ever watched it because I would have been at work. When I left Children's BBC, I then went to GMTV, the breakfast company, that took over the franchise from TVAM. So I watched the last summer of Wackaday, and it was brilliant. And Timmy Mallet was, not only was he engaging, not only was he right there at the level of the kids, he tells brilliant stories. So they used to do historical pieces that were amazingly full of information. And he, but lost in amongst all of the blur and all of that kind of stuff, you kind of forget how brilliant a presenter that Timmy Mallet is. And, you know, Michaela Strachan and Tommy Boyd. There is a story about Tommy Boyd. You might have to get a lawyer to double-check this. <laughs> but Tommy Boyd for a little while, was head of programmes, children's programmes, for TVAM. And the story is that when he was given the step up from presenter to head of, one of the first things he did was give himself a really long contract. So, <laughs> so then they kind of <laughs> sack him. Now, if that's not true, it's still a great story, and Tommy, I can only apologise. But, uh, you know, that's that's the, the legend of the man that is Tommy Boyd, who's always kind of been knocking around, and he was great when he was on TalkSport doing, you know, the kind of speech radio that this country so desperately needs. And Timmy Mallet, we're back to the pop charts again. He had a number one, didn't he? He did, yeah. And, uh, you know, who would have thought Timmy Mallet teamed up with Andrew Lloyd Webber and they did this remake of this old song and it would be number one for weeks and weeks? And, you know, if anyone ever says, oh, yeah, we're, we're, <laughs> we're right back there. Oh, yeah. How do you follow Timmy Mallet? Why, with a penguin that, that has bodily functions. That's how. Part of my responsibility at Children's BBC was doing... The, it's not all about me, I hasten to add, by the way. I'm not, I keep crowbarring in references to my past. I'm not doing it for that reason. But we used to do a children's afternoon sequence that everyone remembers, and there would be one in the mornings as well. So we'd have... When I started, it was still play school, and then it became play days. And so you'd have the big programme... And then you would have a little five-minute something or other. And one morning, we're, we're sitting there, we've got the big play days on, and we've got the birthday cards, and then we say, oh, you've got this new thing, Pingu? I don't, I've got no idea what it is. Because um, we, did, we didn't know. We, was, we were just told there's this thing called Pingu. I probably should have, being a diligent <laughs> presenter, asked for a VHS and watched it and whatever, but I didn't. So I'm sitting there watching this thing, and I'm going, oh, that's play... Playdays is done. It's back tomorrow at the tent stop. And anyway, now, look, we've got a new programme for you. Here's Pingu. And up pops Pingu. Now, Pingu is a little plasticine penguin who walks on the ice and just the noise that his feet make, it, it's kind of like... Sounds great. He's got a mum, and you know it's the mum because she's got the most beautiful eyelashes. And he's got a dad who is reading a paper and smoking a pipe, and they've got skis outside. They're penguins. Why do they need skis? 
and they are living in wherever penguins live, the Antarctic, the, the, the cold penguins, not the hot penguins who like the hot water. And he's got a friend who's a seal who's a bit naughty and there are some bad penguins who take the mickey out of him. And, and Pingu is a small child. So Pingu's eating his dinner and he does. we're not allowed to do it. He, he has his drink and it comes with a straw and he blows bubbles into his drink. Like we all did and in exactly the same way that our mums went, Oi, stop doing that. Pingu's mum goes, Oh, stop doing that. But he's a penguin. And so you're watching this penguin being a child in, in the most glamorous igloo I've ever seen in my entire life. And then he has a little brother or sister. Now, I was watching this sort of... A, we started this on the Monday on Children's BBC. We, we then... The first series of Pingu, I don't imagine it was very long, but it, by like the, a week on Friday, he's had a little brother. And the little brother isn't toilet trained. So the little brother wheeze on the ice. And we, we, I kid you not, there's like myself and there's the camera team sitting in this studio, television centre, where they used to make things like the old grey whistle test. And we see him going, it's a penguin that's just wet itself on the television. <laughs> and it, but it was just so amazingly funny. And the fact that it was, I don't know if in its natural language, what they're saying is actual words, but it was made... I want to say somewhere like Czechoslovakia. Oh, was it Switzerland? Yes. Okay. I don't. Well, I don't know it's Swiss then. But whatever they're talking, it doesn't matter that you can't understand it because you know exactly what Dad is saying when he's berating Pingu for popping a ball or whatever, or what Mum is saying when she's telling him off for playing with his food and stuff. And it, and it just, I don't know, it just works. It just absolutely worked from start to finish. But I do remember that first morning thinking... What on earth is this? What is this? Then this is for children. You know, that kind of thing. But no, great, great show. I, d I did once have an actual Pingu head in my house. Um, my girlfriend at the time went and did a behind the scenes at Pingu and they gave her Pingu's head. And so in a little, in a tub, kind of like, you know, you film tubs that you used to have? Oh, yeah. That, that it was sort of that sort of size and in it was a, a Pingu head. And it, I mean, it was no, it, it, much like many TV things are, it's much smaller in real life. <laughs> Didn't really look that great, but I did have a pingu head briefly. And did you take it away with her when you broke I, I, I think, sadly, that was part of the settlement, I think, pingu. When, or he dried out and possibly been thrown away, possibly. I think it couldn't be that difficult to make one out of plasticine, surely. Yeah, it wouldn't be the same, though. This was, this was your actual pingu. We can all make a morph. But if it's not the morph, it's not morph. So would Pingo, Pingo would have come after morph, wouldn't he? Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So morph would have been the daddy and then Pingu would have been the young pretender. Somewhere around the time, you'd probably have a Wallace and Gromit sort of crowbarring their way into plasticine-related incidents. But uh, And do you think they were too filmic for inclusion on your list? Because Aardman's a massive sort of kid. Do you know, I, I just quite forgot is the honest truth. I think they should be on the list and I think they deserve to be. And, uh, you know, who doesn't love Wallace and Gromit and the fact that it's the, we're right back there with rhubarb and custard, you know, that kind of, you know, it's Gromit who's going to save the day. Uh, but Wallace who thinks it's him and all of that kind of stuff. It's, yeah, they they should have been on. I, I feel ashamed of myself with this top 10 that I've brought to you.
I might have to do a substitution. Well, no, no, I think you're right not to include them because it feels more like a short... They, they feel like short films rather than... Well, they did win Oscars, didn't they? So yeah. technically, I guess, films rather than programmes. I so think they're you're too posh. probably right. Well, let's not mention Shaun the Sheep or I'll be down another moral conundrum and we don't want one of those. Is Pingu a boy or a girl? We don't know, do we? I think he was a boy... But no, we don't know. He he wasn't old enough to have the eyelashes yet, so we're, we're unable to tell. Because <laughs> that's how you yeah. sex a uh, penguin. Uh, the pipe and the eyelashes, they're the giveaways. Yeah. But uh, he was too young to either have a pipe or eyelashes. And it seems to be pipes were quite a thing. Harking back to rhubarb and custard. Yeah. Like that well, was a thing in kids' programmes. Sm- smoking wasn't perhaps frowned upon in the same way that it is in this day and age. It was, it was a different time. And so, you know... There would have been more people in the real world smoking pipes, so it probably wasn't the end of the world to see a penguin smoking a pipe. Although now I'm saying it aloud. <laughs> it, does, it beggars belief that it got commissioned. We yeah. got this children's programme. We want the lead character to smoke a pipe. Is that all right? Penguin who doesn't talk, smoking a pipe. Would there still have been smoking at the back of buses and in cinemas then? Oh, God, yeah, I would have thought so. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it's not that long ago that it was kind of outlawed in public places. So I would have thought so. Although you would have thought that Switzerland would have been a bit more forward-thinking. I kind of, in my head, I think that they're cleaner and more environmentally conscious than we are. So, you know, to have a penguin that was clearly polluting the atmosphere and his own lungs, not the done thing. I'll tell you one thing that Switzerland had in 1993 that we didn't have here. They had a song out in their charts, we're back to the charts again, called Pingu Dance, released by David Hasselhoff, whoever he was. The, the Baywatch man did David a song Hasselhoff called Pingu did Dance. A Pingu Dance song. And now, do we think that that was inspired by the flapping feet on the ice of the, the famous penguin that we're talking about, or does Pingu mean something else? Well, it must have been, because apparently it was only released in Switzerland. Well, fancy that. So, where would we go? Uh, were we to look at the fifth best TV? Well, now, I am going with the Teletubbies. Controversial choice, because I'm sure you remember they were controversial characters when they came on. There was a big to-do about the fact that they were not speaking English. This was a preschool audience that they were targeting. And there were all these rumours about Tinky Winky, the purple one who had a handbag perhaps being gay, which, you know, there is absolutely nothing wrong with an alien being gay, but there was a wave of unhappiness from some parents of younger children. And so this was all kicking off whilst I had my daughter and she would have been one and a half. And so this was the first children's television programme I'd watched through the eyes of a child when I wasn't that child. So whilst I fondly remembered all of the programmes that I loved when I was little, I didn't remember any of the proper little preschool ones. And then I'd done all of the stuff at Children's BBC where I'd been around the preschool shows, but I didn't have any preschool children, so I kind of didn't probably do a very good job of selling the preschool programmes properly. But then to sit with a one-and-a-half-year-old and watch our show and see her smile, see her laugh, see her understand what is going on was this massive eye-opener for me. And Teletubbies as well, it sounds a bit random, but when you watch it, it's got everything in there. So you've got the big characters who wouldn't love a telly in their tummy, who wouldn't love that. 
And it's got things like the Nunu, who's the vacuum cleaner who cleans up after them. And they eat tubby custard. And the speaker thing is definitely a shower head. It's not pretending to be anything other than a shower head in Teletubby land. And you've got the sun that is a smiley baby. And every time the sun smiles and the baby smiles, you kind of just go, oh. And, and then you've got like Eric Sykes' voice popping up, saying whatever he said, his one line that he did, probably one of the last TV things that he made would have been Teletubbies. And it was just to sit and watch my Emily watch Teletubbies. And the, the whole bit, I remember watching the first one. They showed this film on the t- t- Tubby's tummies. I don't know what it was about, a farm or something. I don't know, whatever it was. And then they went, again, again. And then they showed it again. And I'm thinking, well, no, that's just cheap. That's, they're just repeating something yeah. that we've just seen. But then, sitting watching Emily, who then wanted to watch it again, again, again. So we had to video record it, and, w- and so we could watch it. And children like the repetition, and children love the familiarity. And they don't have the same level of boredom that we grown-ups have. We want the next thing. We want to move on. We want it. it's, And so to, to get some understanding of a genre that I never really had understanding of was just so lovely. And the phenomenon that was the Teletubbies. They had a number one record. They also had the, the toys that came out. And I was that parent that had to queue up for those toys. I was working in, in London at the time for a radio station and I would do a radio show that was on until 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning. It was, it was like a military operation. Right, we found out Hamleys had got them. You need to get from work to Hamleys and you've got to be there for opening at 11 o'clock. I get there at like 10.07. There was already this massive queue of people. You were rationed. You're, oh, you can't have a tinky and a po. You've got to choose. And, and then some weeks, we, I did it every week. For eight weeks, we wanted two sets. My mum was convinced Gosh. this was going to be some kind of pension thing. And some weeks, the, the one you wanted wasn't even there. And you had, to, you had to improvise. So I think we had more la-las than we deserved and perhaps not enough pose. But, <laughs> but we, we did get swept up by the phenomenon of the Teletubbies and we did sit with my daughter and watch it and love it and understand it. And just to bring this full circle, my daughter now has a baby of her own, and he's like nine months old. And he loves Teletubbies too. So, but you know, that will be something that brings the family together, will be our love of these bizarre aliens with their tubby custard and their tellies in their tummies. So it started in 1997, and by 2000, the amount of money people had spent on Teletubby stuff Mm. had got to £1 billion. Yeah, I'm pretty sure most of that was mine. From all that queuing up, Andy. It's crazy, isn't it? But a phenomenon. And it went global. And, you know, the Teletubbies were massive in America. So, you know, it's... But what a great format. What a great programme. The fact that with my business head on, the fact that they don't really talk proper words, you can sell that anywhere around the world. Yeah, yeah. And you can work in whatever language you're doing it in. Why wouldn't it be... A global phenomenon. You know, they sort of made reference to it it in The Simpsons and stuff. And this is a little pre-show programme that goes out at 10 o'clock on BBC One. And, you know, you think, oh, that is just amazing. I think, though, with the Teletubbies, missed a trick by not playing... You know, the the Teletubbies could have been in a broom cupboard. 
they could have been the continuity announcer and shown the next programme on their bellies. You know, but I think they've just missed a massive trick there. Well, I like that idea, and I'm I'm thinking that's a genius plan. But to stand up for we real presenters, we don't want our jobs taken by aliens who've got tellies in their tummies because we can't compete with that. Yeah, so you know, you you've got to you've got to look after the boys and me and the union. We wouldn't be happy about that. And I suppose they're not being able to speak in a proper language that people understand well, might hamper it. Yeah, a bit. I don't think so. I think that adds to the charm. Personally, because how often do you see someone on telly talking in a language you understand? You just wish they weren't bothering. So, you know, technically, a Teletubby wins again. But, as I say, for we real presenters, hang fire. But uh, just go with me on this one. Okay. Picture the scene. Uh, you're watching your TV, you're a child. Teletubby's on as continuity announcer, and it's going to show on its belly. The fourth best kids TV programme, according to Simon Parkin. What would you see on its belly? I would see the greatest secret agent in the world. His words, not mine. But I would see Danger Mouse. What a show. What an absolute stonker from start to finish. Um, He was the world's greatest secret agent. And the fact he lived in Baker Street meant that he was a bit Sherlock Holmes. And the fact he had a Colonel came and he was a bit... James Bond and the fact he had a hamster sidekick made him just Danger Mouse but I can remember it coming on and I also used to my comic of choice was Luckin which was uh, it was kind of something between a comic and a magazine and it would have actual wordy written articles and it would also have um, sort of story picture comic strip things and one of those was Danger Mouse and even the the Luckin comic strip Danger Mouse was dead good even though you didn't have David Jason sitting on the sofa reading it to you but you could almost hear it in his voice couldn't you when reading it yeah it just there's something about Danger Mouse and I haven't seen the rework where is it Alexander Armstrong I think he's and I'm sure he is absolutely brilliant but it's it's got to be David Jason and it's got to be Terry Scott so crumbs chief Crumbs, what a great word. Yeah. Couldn't swear, so he says crumbs. And everything is a crumbs. And, uh, well, Colonel K, like that. And then the, the, why was Stiletto the Crow Italian? Hey, Baroni, what's that all about? What's going on there? And the Baron, of course. And, you know, he had that evil kind of baddie voice. He had that funny white furry thing. Yes. That I don't quite know what that was all about. Apparently it was voiced by David Jason as well, but, um... Would that have been like a little takeoff of that Bond villain with the white cat, do you think? Oh, you're probably right, yeah. The uh, Donald Pleasance one. Uh, which one was that? There was the, he was the oh. cricket commentator. Blofeld. Blofeld, That yes. was him. That was, incidentally, it, it was the Blofeld, Henry Blofeld, the cricket man. His dad went to school with Ian Fleming. And that's why Blofeld is called Blofeld, because of... Henry Blofeld's dad. Gosh. Did, did we know that? I think there's a whole podcast on this. Last week we learnt with Roisin and Chiara that um, there's a person in all of Richard Curtis's romantic comedies called uh, Bernard, who's schlubby, because uh, Richard Curtis's university girlfriend went off with someone called Bernard. Wow. So I think there's a lot in how things are named, isn't there? Isn't that lovely that Richard Curtis, who comes across as such a nice man, man who holds a grudge. It's nice to know. Meanwhile, back at Danger Mouse... Back at Baron Green... Was he Von Greenback? Baron Von... Just Baron Greenback, I Baron think. Greenback. Baron Greenback, yeah. But ooh, some of his deadly plans to take over the world. And I loved the fact that 
Danger Mouse would start off in his cool flat, and he's like, I mean, he's a cartoon character for one, he's a mouse for another, and yeah, he had this, like, swanky pad with a big round sofa. And you think, wow, now that, oh, gosh, if I ever have money, I'm going to have a round sofa. I didn't want to live in a, in a pillar box, obviously, but... And the car, and then he had, if he needed it to be a plane, it was a plane. And the, the other thing about Danger Mouse is, you know how he's a mouse who's white? That's actually an outfit. He, yeah. he, he, he was very occasionally, he would change his outfit and stuff. And, it was, and you'd see him take off what clearly is a mouse outfit and turn into something else. Just amazing. Just amazing. But Penfold, I think, was my favourite because of his haphazard way of doing things and the fact that he was a bit scared... And and Terry Scott had one of those lovely warm voices that kind of makes you just feel kind of oh. I went as Danger Mouse to a fancy dress party once. Really? Yeah, I think I was wearing my sister's tights. <laughs> okay, happy days. Yeah, I'm sure she was as thrilled as you were. Did you? Do you think you gave them, gave her them back? I don't mean that as in you kept them, but as in would she have wanted them? I back? suspect so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. If I can find the photo, I'll put it up on the blog. Nathan Show. Forward slash my top ten pod. Did, did you have like a paper mache head? No mask. It's a bit. Oh, uh, okay. So right. a mask and a white hoodie, I think. Okay, so so two D it'll work fine. Three D we might have been a tad disappointed. Yeah, and I had brown shoes on. I don't think that that They're, really was a Danger Mouse look, was it? I don't think he had shoes. Well, I think they were white. I think. Well, he, he, Danger Mouse looked like he has no clothes, so that I don't think he had shoes, but probably they were. And I suspect, knowing Danger Mouse to be the sensible man that he is, they were probably made by Clarks and probably fitted in one of those electric machines that does the sizing, width and length. I would have loved to have lived in a house that had a curb that lifted up to let you in. Yeah. And that cool car. That cool car. You know, that's... But also, how did he get from the top of the post box down to the bottom? I know there was like a, a pole thing, but there, w- there were never letters. There were never... There was, you know... Where were they? Where were the parcels? that have been shoved in second uh, yeah, class. Yeah. What happened to that? And, you know, logic maybe some days is over overlooked in terms of cartoons, but I think we need to get Messrs Cosgrove and Hall and just, you know, get to the finer details of how accurate this depiction of a, a London spy is. And do you think that that uh, post box is really at that point in the 221B Baker Street? Yeah. Do, do you know, I've never looked. I think we went and looked for Sherlock Holmes's house one time, but I didn't look for a post box. Next time I'm in London... I will go and do Baker Street and see if there is indeed a post box there. And I will wait patiently for a little mouse to fly out in a flying car. And this this was a massive series in terms of episodes as well. Ten, ten series before the reboot, which uh, started in 2015 and are still running. So 161 episodes. And they were quite chunky as well. Rhubarb and Custard, which we talked about earlier, it's a little four, five-minute show. Danger Mouse, it was kind of like, you know, 12... 13 minutes by the time you got the adverts either end and stuff. Yeah. No, this was th- there was a lot of work going on here. And th- we know animation is a slow thing. Also, just getting all of those big voiceovers together in the same room. It's amazing. And then it spawned Count Duckula as well. Apparently Count Duckula started off in Danger mm. Mouse. He was a, yeah, he was, a, he was a cameo who then got his own series. Yeah. That's living the dream. That is, that's what you want. But uh, yeah, and again, more work for David Jason, who lends himself to... To odd characters, I, I really didn't ever do Count Duckula. I don't think it did. He kind of didn't. It, it, it must have been in a time in my life where I wasn't able to kind of watch it, and so I didn't. You see what I mean? So I, it's, that's a phenomenon that's passed me by. And again, Count Duckula was one of those with a great theme tune. But 
while we're on theme tunes, let's just play the Danger Mouse theme tune. Nathan from the future here. This is a bit embarrassing. I thought that under fair dealing, I thought I'd be able to play a 30 second clip and not have to worry. However, on looking into it further, apparently podcasts need to get permission as well. So there is no way I'm going to get this permission with about 48 hours to go. So uh, just imagine the clips and go to the website nathan.show and there are links to the clips and lots of other stuff there too. Back to the past. And even the reboot couldn't do anything uh, with that other than just re-record it. Well, it's got the drama. It's got the drama. It's got the excitement. It's got everything going for it and the great lines, you know. Wherever there is danger, he'll be there. I mean, that's what you want in a superhero. Yeah, just sets the stall out. You know exactly what to expect from that opening, don't you? Oh, I love it. Love it. Although Cosgrove Hall, you know, the makers of Danger Mouse, so many other great shows that they did as well, things like Chawton and the Wheelies that was random... But, uh, you know, I will forever remember the strange Welsh witch who was the baddie in Chawton and the Wheelies and, and things like Cockle Shell Bay, which were, they weren't high octane. That was a lovely one as well. And, mm-hmm. you know, they're just brilliant. The, the kind of quality of the output and all from some, you know, little room in, in Chawton, in, which is up in Manchester, which is sort of near where I used to live. So that also used to make me think, wow, this is actually happening kind of nearby. And finally on Danger Mouse, mm. uh, I loved how it broke the fourth wall and sort of interacted sort of with the viewer as well and was a little bit arch. You see, I kind of don't remember that. I, don't, I can remember loving it and I can remember watching it. I sort of, I probably wasn't sophisticated enough to know that there was something even cleverer going on. So is the next programme going to be something cleverer? It's not going to be cleverer. It's going to be even cleverer. Because the BBC had a programme called Play School that was on in the daytime and it was for the preschool audience. And if you were my generation, two things about Play School. Firstly, you had to guess what window they were going through. Would it be the arch window? Would it be the square window? This was proper drama in my misspent youth. (gasps) They've gone round! They've gone round! And secondly, you only ever watched Play School... When you were wagging it from school, you, it would be on when you were on the school holidays, but you were off doing fun stuff during the school. You didn't have time to watch telly. So the only time you would watch it was when it felt naughty to be watching it because you were probably not as ill as you'd made out to get the day off school and you probably just wanted to watch play school. But the BBC had a trick up their sleeve in order to be able to, you know, if you are watching it and you're not supposed to be watching it, don't you worry. We're going to put this evil doll called Hamble on and she will frighten you back to school. Mm-hmm. There was something about her. She kind of looked a bit grubby and she sort of, you know, she, your sister probably had a, a doll like Hamble and a bit of a wonky eye. And, you know, you kind of that whole sort of thing where, you know, oh, oh, she's a bit scary, is Hamble. Not like the nice Ted's, big and little. But, um, but play school was on and he had legends like Brian Kant. Johnny Ball, who went on to do Think of a Number. Um, Derek Griffiths, who was an amazing actor. Tony Arthur was on. Carol Shell. Proper legends from our youth. Only ever found in this morning, slightly odd preschool programme. And then 
it happened. Back when I was little, on a Saturday, if you didn't like sport, there was nothing on telly for you. You had World of Sport on ITV with that nice Dickie Davis. Uh, you had Grandstand with that nice Frank Boff on the BBC. Didn't like rugby. Didn't like the football. Nothing for you. And then the BBC went, well, hang on a minute. We've got all these talented people playing with Ted's on play school. Let's give them a Saturday tea time show. And so Play Away was invented. And Play Away, well, it wasn't little children. This was kind of big children. And they do jokes and they do songs. And they, and I only know this retrospectively because I was watching it, not really having any idea about what was going on. But they had proper acting legends. So you Tony Robinson would have been on there doing some sort of songs and, and stories. And they had Jeremy Irons. And, you know, the, the calibre of stars and holding it all together, Brian Kant and Tony Arthur. And you just, 25 minutes, flew by. It, it didn't, you didn't have to think too hard. There were songs that you'd heard before. They would they'd do things like, you know, the Emperor's New Clothes kind of songs, that kind of song that was sort of already there in folklore. And they'd do stupid jokes. And it was just dead, dead watchable. Particularly if, like me, you had absolutely no interest in the diving from Munich this weekend. And it seemed like it was just one free-flowing sort of vaudeville show. Like, I don't know whether I've whether I wasn't paying enough attention when I was watching it through, uh, but it just felt like one take almost. Was it just a live... Well, the, yeah, because they would do, when they were doing songs, that they do those complicated songs that children, you know, would sing like the... When you... Um, the man who stitched the thingies on the noses of the what's-its of the thingy. And, th- and they'd be doing that and they'd be, they'd be laughing because they were getting it wrong as well. Now, probably... With our great knowledge of how TV works, we now understand that to be there was no time for a retake. It's too cheap. Just, just we got to live with it. We got to live with it. Whereas now it would have been all done right. Let's get the CGI out. We can fix this. Don't you worry. We can do this in. We can do this in post. But back then, but it added to the charm because we were at home singing along, getting all the words wrong. So it's quite funny that Brian Kant's getting the words wrong as well. So yeah, no, it it was. I don't necessarily remember. The start, the middle and the end of it, I just remember thinking, wow, they've put something on a Saturday for me. Because otherwise it would be like black and white films. And you didn't want to watch those when you were kind of, you know, only seven or eight or whatever. And it was just, it was funny. And it was because of the cast of characters from Play School, there was something a bit naughty about watching it. And there was something a bit reassuring about knowing that you were in the very safe hands of these trusted BBC children's presenters like Derek Griffiths, who, you know, just great from start to finish. Loved Playaway. Had, I had the book as well. They, they would bring out, like, you had the Blue Peter Annual. Bit stiff and starchy. <laughs> you had the play Playaway book. It had jokes in. It had things. It, it started with ladies and jelly spoons. I remember it said, ladies and gentlemen, and thinking, wow, that's the funniest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> and Brian Kent was an absolute juggernaut, wasn't he? He was... Play School was the kind of thing that you knew him best for, but he was the voice of Trumpton, Chigley, Camberwick Green. And he was a very tall man and just did what he did. And I don't, I, how he had made a living, I've got no idea, because presumably the Camberwick Green and the Chigleys, he knocked those out in a morning, I would have thought. And Play School, he was only on every like six weeks or something. So I've got no idea how he sustained a, a living. 
But he was great. Um, maybe he was doing like theatrical acting up and down the country. I've got no idea. But he was no, he was just, and he is one of those faces of my childhood, where he was always happy. He was always smiley. He just brings back a good time to me. If I saw Brian Kent, did he? I think he died relatively recently, yeah, didn't he? he did, and yeah. you know, he's like proper up there with like your Jeffrey from Rainbow, where you just kind of you know you're in safe hands with Jeffrey from Rainbow and Brian Kent. You got to watch how you say his name. Obviously, you don't want to fall foul of that one. But no, he was just an icon of my youth and play away genius. Whoever came up with that idea. BBC Two, stick a programme on. Don't know what the ratings were, I don't know if anyone watched it, but it was great. So would that have been the first of its kind in that sort of slot? Kind of, yeah, because children's programmes were in very defined slots. We didn't have Saturday morning telly for years and years. So, you know, that would have been, there'd have been maybe half an hour of cartoons that went out, but that would have been it. So it was. It, it's only later that children's programming sort of got its act together and you went, right, you can have a preschool bit here and you can do a more sort of family-generated thing there and we can do a Sunday afternoon drama here and all of that kind of stuff. So, you know, play the, the defined slots for kids' shows would have been you watch with Mother on the telly in the morning and you sort of children's BBC in the afternoon. That That's all you got. So something on a Saturday in the afternoon when you kind of, you'd bought, you don't want to go shopping. That's all there was to do on a weekend back then. There's nothing to do. Shopping. What sport? They're, they're your choices. And if you don't fall into either of those camps on that day, who wouldn't want to watch Tony Robinson singing a daft song? And you mentioned Saturday morning TV there for kids. How would that have started, he says, rather archly, knowing where this question's leading? Well, in my life, it started with Swap Shop. Now, there had been children's programmes on a Saturday morning before Swap Shop, and it would have been... Things like the dubbed black and white Robinson Crusoe. There was a banana splits thing that was great. Um, but essentially, one Saturday morning, and it was I think it was heralded as being, oh, the BBC's got this great idea. And Noel Edmonds, he was very famous because he was the Radio 1 Breakfast Showman at that time. So he was a big star. And also, and this is difficult for perhaps some younger listeners to understand, he was actually really cool then he was he was pucker he wasn't the sort of you know the kind of oh it's that Noel Edmonds that he sort of grew into because he'd been doing it for so long been doing it for so long he was he was one of us he was cool and there's this show that you can phone up you can phone a tv show and you might talk to David Soul who's either Starsky or Hutch on the phone and at the same time you can also say, Noel, let me just give you something here. I've got this rubbish watch that I don't want anymore, and I really want a train set. Could you find someone who wants this rubbish watch, who's got a train set they don't want, and I can have that? And he'd do all of that for you. And and this is three hours on a Saturday morning, the likes of which we've never seen before. And much like the magpie, the blue piece of thing of earlier on, it was kind of loose and informal. And Noel, and I have nothing but praise for Noel Edmonds as a performer and also as someone who knows how to do telly. I had the pleasure of watching him do Telly Addict, which is a show that he used to do, he used to do up at Pebble Mill, and they do three shows in a day. 
and I watched him do two of them. He had no auto cue, he had no cue cards, and he remembered everybody's names, and he just did it. And I said to him at the end, I said, how, how do you do that? And he said, I just do it. That's just what I do. But ask me now about anything that's happened, I will have no idea. And he could just do it. Noel's house party. He'd be doing the sketches, he'd be opening the door to Tony Blackburn, he'd be linking into a VT, and all of that was just in his head. It was rehearsed and it was planned, but he could just do it. Swap shop, he had all of those skills, but with a blank piece of paper as well. There was no sort of script. There was no, there would have been a, right, with this item starts here and it, the one after is that. Fill for four minutes or five minutes or whatever. And Noel Edmonds would do it. And he, so you would, I can remember, and you've got to think, this is, you know, the late 70s. So I'm not as sophisticated and, and as all-knowing as I am now. He would start the show, hello, welcome to Swap Shop. We've got Keith out and about somewhere or other and we've got the, oi, Darren, you still got your pyjamas on? Go and get dressed. <clears throat> anyway, as I was saying, uh, John Craven is going to be doing that. And, th and that would, I'd be thinking, he can see into our houses <laughs> because of the way that he did it in such a lovely, natural way. And, and the show, three hours of, of stuff, and it was a bit stiff and BBC, and so you'd go and uh, John's here with the, the newsy stuff. And John Craven, absolute legend and news round, definitely one of those programmes that is on the, uh, you know, should have been on my top ten but isn't, but because it's it's too well thought of by everybody else. But that, to me, was right. I can turn over and see what's, what they're doing on Tiswas when, when John Craven came on. I said, no, it's the news. Don't want to watch that. But actually, the relationship that John and Noel had was really lovely. And, that you know, they were... Great mates in real life, and he used to. Noel used to give John a lift in on the way in, and all of this kind of stuff. And you're kind of thinking, this is just a lovely way of spending your Saturday morning. You can watch a little bit, and then you can go out and do a paper round, and then you can come out, you know, and all of that. And it just was like nothing we'd seen before. And they do right. We're going to uh, show you what a camera looks like today. Oh, let's let's show you how you do a special effect. Here's a man from the BBC special effects team, fellow called Matt Irving, used to do these. Um, Especially facts. You go, right, let me show you how we blow up a Dalek. And they do that on... And you're watching this thinking, wow, this is amazing. And all the while, there's Noel, who, through my eyes, legend God, that's the man I wanted to be. And all he did was impress me week after week after week. And Keith, Keith would be out on an OB. Now, I, I wanted him to be near where I was. I now know that the, the swap shop OBs were governed by what sport they were doing that day. So if match of the day was going to do the match from uh, Liverpool, then he would be somewhere near there because that's where the OB scanner van was going to be. Right. For tip switch this week, right, he's going to be down there. Didn't know that at the time. Every Saturday. I'd be like, oh, come on, come on, please. Please let them say he's in Stretford so I can go and go and be there. I didn't know what I wanted to do other than see Keith Chegwin in the flesh wearing a silly plastic hat. It was like a bowler hat that they had on Swap Shop. But the, the magic of, oh, you can phone a show and it might be down my road. That was just, telly wasn't like that then. Now, of course, now we've gone through all of the Saturday morning incarnations and we had the big breakfast. And now we've got, you know, highly sophisticated equipment on our mobile phones that we can upload on YouTube. We can do anything from anywhere. But back then, to have a show that could be 
in the car park of Television Centre, for starters, was that was big and exciting enough, let alone maybe in my local park. And Keith Chegwin's going to be there as well. And he, who's to say he's not going to have Shawadiwadi performing while he's there? Never happened. Never happened in my lifetime. But I yearned for that moment that they would be somewhere near. And the phoning... You did it. 580-4468 was the first swap shop number. And that wasn't even the famous swap shop number. 01-580-4468. I think that lasted a series. And then it became 01, if you're outside London, 811-8055. And that's the number that lasted. But the fact that I still remember the first number... The only reason I can still remember that is because I used to spend three hours on a Saturday morning <laughs> on a rotary phone thinking, please let today be the day that I get to ask Noel something about his hair dye or something, you know. Because you could phone and ask Noel a question. You didn't have to just ask David Attenborough or Tony Hart. Who could, you could ask Noel something. And... and <laughs> The, never, no, you know, always engaged. Always, but the thought that, and they'd have the little goldfish bowl. And they'd, they'd, here's Jane and Sue and Deborah who are taking your calls this morning. The thought that I might get through to one of them. Oh, I mean, this is just phenomenal how big an impact it had. And that's kind of what made me think, well, I want to do that. Why would you not want to be Noel Edmonds doing that? Yeah. Without the beard, obviously. And while we're talking numbers, I'm worried dear viewers, that we might have been a bit oblique. This is actually Simon's number two pick. I think I worried that our production was too seamless in entering this. Oh, sorry, program. did we not say that? Well, I think uh, that's my fault. But um, th it just shows how enduring the Saturday morning TV was, that the 01-811-8055 number, I then remember transforming to... 081 yeah. 811 and then on again to 0181 811 Did it get as far as 0207? No, we, oh. t t well, let me think. Shepherd's Bush would have been 0208, probably. I would have thought. Should we when, try when phoning the... it now? We could do. We have the power. Right, here we go. What was it again? 0208 the number you have dialed is for sale as a memorable phone number and is not in use by any business or company. If you are not looking to buy or rent a memorable phone number, please hang up now. If you do want to buy or rent this number, please hold the line. Are we, are we brave enough okay, to... OK, we're nearly there. Yeah, if you're a new company and have received be. a letter through the post from phone no. numbers no, store we're not. No, offering no. you a specific no. memorable landline or no. mobile number to rent or purchase, no. please press 1. Oh, I need to or press if button. you would simply like to talk to us about purchasing or renting a memorable landline or mobile number for your business please say, please on hold. one of our XL mobile SIM cards, hosted voice phone, or to port away, please press 2. I'll just keep quiet. Phone number store. Speaking, how may I help you? Oh, hello there. This is a very random question, but I remember fondly the number from Swap Shop when I was little, and I just rang it just now to see what happens and got put through to you as being eligible to buy the phone number that I really want to. Are you able to tell me how much it would cost to buy let, a phone number? Let me just have a little look for you. What was your name there? My name's Simon. OK, hi, Simon. Hiya. What was the contact number that you wanted to dial, Jen? The number was, um, it, it's 0208 811 8055. 
bear with me. Let me just have a look for you. Thank you. Right, so it's dependent on what you wanted to do. There's two options. You can either have a connection price and then you pay a monthly fee or you can basically purchase it outright. Um, so there's, there's two different ways of doing it. So if you have to, just to have the connection, it's £99 and then you'd pay £12 monthly. Okay. Um, or it, it's £999 to purchase it completely outright and it's your, yours, you know, forever sort of thing until you, you, you want to change it. So either sound way more affordable than I thought they were going to be. Thank you so much for furnishing me with that information. For, for less welcome. than £1,000, I can have that iconic phone number. That's there astounding. You go. Oh, well, there look, you go. It's been lovely <laughs> chatting to you. Lovely chatting to you. Thanks Thank you for, for your calling. time. Bye-bye. Thanks, Simon. Bye-bye. There you go. For a grand, we can buy it. Wow. And we still get a pound change. So how uh, all we would need to do then, then, yeah. is to make... Uh, Saturday morning ah, show. Ah, so that's where it falls down. Before we get to your number one, okay. this is this is we couldn't have planned this better. Before we get to your number one program, let's just take a, a scenic route, and you are the commissioner of Saturday morning kids TV okay. at the BBC. Yeah, you've got three hours. Yeah, how are you going to fill it? Who's going to be in it? What are the top cartoon sort of insert things? Oh, blind design blimey. for me now. On the hoof, how that would look. Okay, right. You you have Noel, absolutely. That's a given. You have Andy Peters. That's a given. You have Philip and Sarah. That's a given. You have the What's Up Doc elements that we loved from earlier on, the anarchic puppets. Cartoon-wise, I think you would want something like a Bugs Bunny. Something that is, you know, universal appeal, a roadrunner, kind of everywhere. It's not going to make anyone think, oh, I've got to turn this off. But, you know, the fact that it's there, that's a good bit of furniture to have. Um, I think you want some pop stars and some pop music, definitely. You definitely want Keith on an OB, chattering teeth because he's freezing cold, but you want him out there. Um, I think you probably want me on it because, uh, you know, that was the gig I never got. And so I'd quite like that that job now at last. And also, as you're the commissioner, you can, yeah, can sign your own contract. Yeah, I'm going to pay more than Tommy Boyd ever paid himself at TVAM. Um, I, I think I think you could take all of the elements of all of the shows that I loved on a Saturday morning that were all born from Swap Shop. So there were bits of Superstore I loved. There were bits of Going Live that were great. Trevor and Simon, they were funny. We'll have them on. And then Live and Kicking came on with Andy and Emma and then with Jamie and Zoe when it got a bit cooler. And then that's when the BBC went off the boil and the Saturday morning output wasn't quite the same. Um, but th there were, so for example, in the in-between times of the big BBC Saturday morning shows, they were your winter. They were your winter big shows. We get Noel in, we does him in the winter. Well, let's see who's, who's like a cut price Noel. Peter Powell from Radio 1, right, he can have a show that goes in the summer. So he did a show called Get Set for Summer. And they used to do on that show, um, they would have a video game. Now, uh, we're talking early 80s, we didn't have video games. We had maybe Space Invaders in a pub that you were allowed to go into and have a glass of lemonade. We didn't have video games. They had a video game on the thing where you, you that something would happen on a screen. You at home, would say it was called TV Pow, and you would say, Pow! And something happened 
on this video. I don't know. But whatever happened, that won your points and that won your prizes. So we'd have something as simple as that, that whilst might be sophisticated in the, the way that it looks, is actually dead straightforward. And you're not having to go down, you know, video games of today. I understand any of this sort of little, oh, you're, you're flying through here. Have you got your multi-tool, what's it, Jim, call it, that you got given by a fairy? We're not having any of that. We're having straightforward, simple, make sense kind of TV. We're probably going to steal from things like the Big Breakfast that stole from your swap shops and your superstores and all of that kind of stuff. And if we can't make it work, then we honestly don't deserve to be working. And that just sounds wonderful. So quick recap then. At 10, we've got uh, Children's BBC Broom Cupboard. At 9, What's Up Doc? 8, Rhubarb and Custard. 7, Magpie. 6, Pingu. 5, Teletubbies. 4, Danger Mouse. 3, Play Away. Number 2 is Swap Shop. And at number 1, Simon, your favourite ever kids TV programme is... Maid Marion and Her Merry Men. Genius from start to finish. Um, I have to say, I think Tony Robinson is just great. He, when I was, I wasn't growing up because I was already sort of, you know, bordering grown up at the time that he first appeared on the telly in Blackadder. But he also used to do a, a kids TV series called Tales from Fat Tulips Garden. And that was, I'd grown up with a programme called Jack and Ori on the BBC where storytelling was someone very old and distinguished, sitting in a chair, reading from a book. And Tony Robinson did Tales from Fat Tulips Garden, which was just telling stories, but he did it in such a brilliant way. He was expressive, he had all the voices, he had everything going for him. So we know Tony Robinson is a great storyteller. That's why he's so good on time team and that's why he's so good on that funny channel five show where he takes drones into factories and stuff because he just knows how to tell a story so tony robinson and i know this because he told me this story in real life did blackadder everybody loved blackadder everybody loved baldrick particularly young people and they would come up to him and they say oh we love you baldrick you're great they don't make kids shows like that for us and he went, no, no, they don't, do they? Because the kids' shows that were kids' comedy shows were nothing against the Chuckle Brothers, but they were that kind of chuckle vision kind of over-the-top panto with or crackerjack with oh, lots of children laughing in the background at some, some cheesy puns. And so Tony Robinson wrote Blackadder for Kids, and that was Maid Marian and Her Merry Men. And so you've got a, an iconic story, Robin Hood, and right, how do we turn it on its head? Way ahead of any, you know, sort of movement for equality. No, let's make Marion the star of it all. Let's make Robin Hood a bit of a clown. And then they bring together this incredible cast of characters who just bring the show to life. So Danny John Jules, who I don't think at that point was even in Red Dwarf, or he might just have been, I don't know. But he then kind of raps through the show. So you, you got rap in there and you've got the the wonderful scripts that are clever and funny and not at all kiddie and adult and all of the anarchy and they're in a forest getting dirty and it's just from start to finish one of those shows that you just couldn't not love 
and I like the way it's spoofed things as well. Like they'd just be, there'd be real sort of um, social commentary going on, and they'd be talking about things that were relevant at the time it was made. Um, and it's very anachronistic, like mentioning adverts and things, mm. and just really sort of blended. I, I, I didn't want to when I was doing this list. I didn't want to go on YouTube and be disappointed by all of the things that I saw because uh, it's not it's not quite you know don't, don't kind of work now. The bits of Maid Marian that I rewatched, it was just funny, just funny. There was this one scene where they're selling rats that are flavoured like crisps. <laughs> now, how is it not funny? To say, now, do you want a cheese and onion rat or would you rather prawn cocktail? Well, that's it's it's nonsensical, funny. And it's just a great show. And the the songs, there was one, and I haven't rewatched it for years and years and years. There's one that was on It's Pancake Day. Yes. It's Pancake Day. It's Pancake Day. Every Pancake Day, I wake up and that's how I start my day in my head. Because that, that was such a brilliant, simple song from a brilliant, simple show that probably was really hard work and probably was, you know... Done on a shoestring budget, but just so good. And Tony Robinson, what an absolute bona fide national treasure that he has gone on to be, that he saw this gap in the market and thought, well, I could, no, yeah, nobody's doing doing Blackadder for kids, so I'm going to. And just, just a great show. And great that he made such a strong female lead as well. It's... Well, I mean, that now, that would be, that'd be some sort of tick box of, oh, hang on a minute. The the leads are male. Is there anything we can do to address that in this day and age? Whereas back then, he just did it. But it's the, all that, the, the sort of, I love the anti-hero kind of thing. There was a great cartoon that I used to love called Kong, Hong Kong Fooey when I was little. And Hong Kong Fooey thought he was the bee's knees, but it was Spot the Cat that did everything and would go, no, when Hong Kong Fooey was taking the credit for whatever. And it's like that with Maid Marian, where from the very first episode... She's the one. She's got all of the charm. She's got all of the skills. And Robin Hood is just a... He's just a clown. He's just a, you know, a bit of an idiot. Thinks he's good looking. You know, and you can sort of probably imagine, not that this is in any way, shape or form meant to be a historical piece. I'd like to think Robin Hood was actually a bit like that in real life. That he was kind of, yep, I think I'm the, I'm the bee's knees. When in fact he probably wasn't, but yeah. but also that, that you know the cast of characters. So Tony Robinson gives himself a part. Why wouldn't you? Well done, Tony, as the uh, the sheriff of Nottingham, the baddie, and these henchmen. One of them is Mark Billingham, who's now a proper writer. He writes like crime fiction books and stuff. And I had to interview him once, and all I wanted to talk about was Maid Marian, because that's <laughs> that's like that's that, that's the good. Stuff. Forget that book that's selling like hotcakes. Because it was just a great show. And he didn't do that many series, I don't think, and it wasn't around for that long. And the BBC and the BBC way that they did things. I think we used to, on Children's BBC, because I was there at that era, we bigged up the fact it was coming back. And I think we did a sort of behind-the-scenes report from... It's filmed not very far from where we're sitting now. It's filmed on um, Exmoor, uh, which is sort of our neck of the woods. And and so you would... we, We did it, but I don't think it ever got the credit that it deserved. From the BBC, and I don't think it ever got the, you know, the. It, I'm, I'm not sure if it won awards even, but I don't know. But it should have done, because it's just good. I think it did. I've got a okay. feeling I've read that it might have won a BAFTA and Let me have a look. Let me have a look. 
Made by an American man, won several awards. Oh, yeah, he did. He won the 1990 BAFTA for Best Children's Programme. Also nominated for the same prize, Lost to Press Gang. Oh, if you can lose us something, then that's not Yeah, a bad Press one. Gang was great. That was a great show. So we'll allow that. Um, Programme also won at least one award from the Royal Television Society. So at least one means probably not two. But, um, but no, well deserve it. What a, just a great, great show that... I don't know, does anyone else remember it as fondly as I do? I'm sure they do. Oh, I do. But I don't know it pops up on the lists when they do... Radio Times has done the list of whatever. I don't know Maid Marian is there as high as it should be. And again, what a song. What a song. Like we said on the other ones, what a, what a way to set the show up. Yeah. Well, and also the, the, it ended with that and all, and it was like some animated thing where the very last thing they do is on a printing press, print a D, that then goes before the word director, and that lovely playing with the credits. You know, that's to do that on a TV show. Nobody did that then. You didn't sort of, you didn't play with stuff. Your credits ran and your titles did this, and maybe on a Saturday morning they'd maybe do a, they've done a pre-title something, and then so you'd have a bit of, and then the title, and then... But they didn't do that on telly. So to kind of, you know, be doing a great show and it's a bit fun at the end, even the very last thing is kind of a, God, that's funny and all. You know, just great. And, and I suspect it's the only TV show that has ever been serialised in a proper grown-up newspaper. It was turned into a cartoon strip in the Telegraph, not in the actual real Telegraph. They did this thing called the Young Telegraph. And and it was in that. So, you know, for, for a BBC comedy show to turn up in a highly respected broadsheet newspaper probably shows how good the quality was. And thank goodness for YouTube, because they're all on there, I think, probably in this day and age. I'd like to hope so. Although, you know, for the sake of Tony Robinson and maybe if he needs another holiday home, we should perhaps buy the actual official DVDs that I'm sure are still for sale. But, uh, you know, uh, but yeah, YouTube as well. Definitely. And in terms of researching this, I saw a good double bill. It was a double episode, which again, for a kids' TV show, normally they're just sort of all encapsulated in one episode and then they move on and do something completely different, forgetting everything that had happened uh, in the previous episode next time. Mm. I had a double bill at the end of series three that I saw where Marion's best friend, Rose, uh, stabbed her in the back and had her and Robin captured and thrown in a dungeon. Wow. And it, it carried on into the, the next episode, which was a series finale of series three, where they had to all escape again. Um, and I love the fact that Tony Robinson's uh, Sheriff of Nottingham yeah. and Maid Marian herself are the only smart ones. And they're like almost sort of their own little gang of yeah. being the clever ones. And then all the other characters who are a lot more stupid sort of have little moments, you know, they're supposed to be good and bad and they have their own little moments, like the stupid ones together sort of uh, get on with each other in their own sort of stupid club, don't they? And it always comes back to, oh, yeah. I'm surrounded by nincompoops on that, both sides. That's where you get great comedy from. So you've got, you know, you've got your leaders and you've got your followers. And if everyone's a leader, then you've not got enough followers. But no, it's just, I just remember it coming on at the time and thinking, oh, this is really good. And then Tony Robinson telling me how it all came about and thinking, God, that's just brilliant. And then I think it stood up to the test of time. I've not watched a whole load of them on YouTube because I didn't. 
but I'm pretty sure that I, I wouldn't not find each one riveting. You might not know the advert references or the current event references. Well, you know me, I'm so, so much, old. But... I probably would. <laughs> probably I love that advert too. When we when I come back and do my top ten favourite adverts, they're probably <laughs> all the ones that were in Maid Marian, tucked away in a comedy line somewhere. So when you said you had a chat to Tony Robinson about it, how did that come about? Well, he, he would have come on to Children's BBC to plug it or some other project that he was involved in. And so you kind of you kind of were lucky enough to be in the presence of people like Tony Robinson. And Tony Robinson is just such a lovely man. So he would talk like a normal person. He, you know, there was no sort of, you know, oh, I'm only going to give you this bit. There's the, the real Tony is hidden over here. He'd just to talk about, you know, off air, you'd be... Whatever programme was playing out live, we'd be going, oh, ooh, fancy that. What about this? And uh, and he is just as lovely as a man on the telly as he is in real life. And just, you know, someone who's just really good. Simon, I think everything you've just said about Tony Robinson there, I could apply to you. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on my top ten. Thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. And that, my friends, was Simon. Absolutely fantastic to reminisce about all those excellent programmes. Um, on the subject of excellent programmes, if you want to catch up with Simon's radio show, you can find it on the BBC Sounds app. Now, this is quite an admin-heavy episode in terms of extra stuff, so do go along to the website, nathan.show, where you'll find links to the theme tunes we mentioned and also photos. Uh, there's a picture of Simon's nest egg there. There's one of me as Dane's mouse as a young chap. So get along and see all the things that complement the programme. Another way to complement the programme uh, this is just seamless is to get along to your podcast app and rate and subscribe it. Um, or even go along to patreon.com forward slash my top 10 pod and chuck some money at the programme, although no one has yet because that's how bad it is. I'll be back next week in Taunton, why didn't I do both at the same time, with writer and blogger Joe Middleton. See you next week.